It's been almost a month now since we were last, actually probably right at a month since we were last in the book of Daniel. Uh, We're in chapter 4, and thus far we've looked at the first 18 verses uh, in the book of Daniel, all of which comprise Daniel's second dream. Well, not Daniel's dream, it was actually Nebuchadnezzar's dream written in the book of Daniel. And it was there that Nebuchadnezzar himself said in verse 2 that it was a revelation to him about, quote, what the Most High God has done for me. So Daniel chapter 4 was a, is a revelation from God to Nebuchadnezzar, and we have the opportunity of see how God worked through the life of Nebuchadnezzar in what a lot of scholars believe is God's bringing Nebuchadnezzar opening his eyes of faith, and recognizing the only true and living God. As a matter of fact, there are, there are some scholars who are very definitive that when we enter into heaven ourselves, one of the individuals that you will meet some, someday would be Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that kind of fascinating to think about? Now, I'm not God, so I don't give definitives on who gets in in heaven and who doesn't get in heaven, other than what the Scripture says, which is those who call out in the name of the Lord, repent of their sins, and by faith trust in Christ alone. They, they get to heaven, but I'm, I'm letting God mead that out in the, in the heavenlies because he clearly articulates that the way to life is narrow and few there be who find it. And it's always articulated and attributed to the life. Like the testimony of the lips is one thing, but the life bears out the evidence of the true testimony. So people can say all they want to say about who they think God is or how they are living in relationship to him, but it's the life that always bears evidence of a true conversion that only God can do in the heart. And so we're going to see something that takes place very significant in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 without question. And what I want us to do by way of kind of review and getting us up to snuff is looking at the first three verses, because the first three verses... What's this telling me? something about Apple TV over here. Okay, good, it's gone. The first three verses set up the rest of the entire chapter. So what we see in the first three verses is that which occurs after the activities or the uh, the events that take place in Nebuchadnezzar's life in chapter 4. So Nebuchadnezzar lives out chapter 4, and in reality, in response to the things that happened to his life in chapter 4, he begins by giving this testimony in the first three verses. So let's take a peek again at the first three verses by way of intro for us. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and every and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. So Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful ruler at that time, is wanting all peoples, all nations, and people of every language that live on the earth to understand something. It has seemed good to me, verse 2, to, to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. So he's going to be giving a declaration of what God has done for me. We see that right there at the end of verse 2. So in verse 3, he says, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar was so utterly changed by the circumstances of chapter 4, the the events that the Lord God brought into his life, that his 
his perspective on who God is has changed radically. And one of the things we see here, which is, I think, a, a recognition of what happens in the lives of God's people. He wants everyone to know just how great God is. There's something that happens in the life of a person who gets converted, the life of a person who all of a sudden puts their pride down, confesses their sin and repents, and looks only to heaven for salvation. There's something radical that takes place in the heart of that man or woman, that child of God. And we see that when that happens, all throughout the Scriptures, they want to make that knowledge known to all the peoples, every nation, every man of every language that lives on all the earth. I need to tell you something very significant about God. And in particular, it wasn't just any old God. It was the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that Nebuchadnezzar has come to see differently and understand differently. Verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. Should that not be what is the praise off our lips every single day? I mean, we're singing a song, it's his breath in our lungs. Is it his breath? What is it? How's that song go? It's your breath in our lungs, right? You don't want me singing, trust me. But, you know, that the recognition that it's God who has made us, we're made in the image of God. Every breath we take is a gift from Him. Life is a gift from Him. How could we not want to tell how great are His signs and mighty are His wonders in the world and towards us individually? And indeed, it's his kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom that will, that will endure forever and ever. Now, where did Nebuchadnezzar get that knowledge? Chapter, yes, thank you. Chapter 2, remember chapter 2? His first dream, Nebuchadnezzar's first dream that kept him awake all through the nights and started seeking out for counsel in chapter 2. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream that looked just like this, I think, or something similar to this. And it was in that dream in chapter 2. See right here? See this one right here? Right here, this rock that was cut without hands. It's going to demolish this statue that was representative of the world powers from Babylon. Right here. The Medes and the Persians. Greece. Rome. And then a future revived Roman European League of Nations represented by the ten toes of iron and clay. But then there's going to be another kingdom that comes, and it says it's, it comes as a rock that was cut without hands. And we made mention and we demonstrated clearly in chapter 2 how this is a reference to the second advent of Jesus Christ. God is, Christ is going to come again, and he's going to abolish worldly powers completely, and he's going to establish a kingdom on planet earth. And as Nebuchadnezzar recognized from that dream, his dominion is from generation to generation. It's an everlasting kingdom that he will be establishing. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar gets it now. He's recognizing the truth that God had previously shown him. Now, he didn't get there initially, did he? Initially, he was glad to see that he was the head of gold, and so 
he thought, well, why shouldn't I establish, establish myself as the entirety of this statue? Because he was still living in his pride. And so we saw in chapter 3, he erected a statue in the plain of Dura that was completely of gold. And he required all people to bow down when you hear the sound of the, 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 all those instruments. I just started stumbling over them. But all those instruments that get listed there, when you hear the sound of those instruments, bow down. But there were those who didn't. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they refused to bow down. And they stood, and that's what um, we gained, learned from that. But Nebuchadnezzar has now recognized that there is a kingdom that's coming, and it's God's kingdom that will endure forever and ever and ever. And in that chapter 2 dream, it says, In the days of those kings, in the days of these kings right here, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, the, the worldly kingdoms of man, but it will itself endure forever. These are the things that God has been needing into the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And then from there to chapter, excuse me, verse 18 of chapter 4, basically, um, we see the second dream that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. And since today we're picking up basically in verse 20, which is the interpretation of that dream where we left off a month ago, I thought it might behoove us if we just kind of read through the dream itself before we pick up in verse 20. I'm not going to articulate as we go along. You can go back a month ago online, and you can see that sermon, and you can listen to it. But let me just read this for you, and then we, when we get to verse 20, we can pick up there. So here's the dream, beginning in verse 9. O Belshazzar, that's Daniel, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation." And now verse 10, now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence, verse 17, is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes 
and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, again, who is Daniel, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So here we have the dream, and you may recall Daniel's response, which was there in verse 19, and we talked some about that a month ago. But notice again the, the, the response from Daniel, which was one of remorse, which we talked about in more detail of how unique it is that Daniel has such compassion for one who would be rightly considered his enemy. The very one who overthrew, if you remember all the way back in Daniel chapter 1 in the third reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, there he is, the king of Judah, of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's the same man that besieged Daniel's homeland and his people and destroyed his homeland and and deported his people. Here Daniel, we're going to see in verse 19, has compassion for this man's soul. I think Jesus kind of articulates this in the gospel age. We're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This might be a precursor of that kind of heart. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, my lord... If only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. So Daniel has great compassion on the recognition of the judgment that God's going to be bringing into the life of Nebuchadnezzar and the great humiliation that he's going to go through. So that's the dream. And in the second half of chapter 4, from verse 20 all the way down through verse 33 specifically, we're given its interpretation, which... um, is our primary focus this morning, and then the very end of it, wrapping it up, which is again a a tribute to the the testimony of the changed life of the man of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get there from verses 34 through 37. Let's start here by looking at verse 20, and let's pick up with its interpretation. Verse 20, Daniel's reply. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth." So Nebuchadnezzar is this great tree whose power and provision and dominion have been a blessing, as we can see in reading through this, has been a blessing to many. His dominion, it says, has reached all the way to the end of the earth, meaning all the known people on the earth that your kingdom has reached, you have been a blessing for, a provision for. And so this dream is about Nebuchadnezzar. Now keep watching in verse 23. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, Daniel says, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a 
band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. Now, obviously, this would be the portion of the dream that was keeping Nebuchadnezzar up and alarmed. Remember earlier in chapter 4, verse 5, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. Well, now we know why his person was fearful and why his mind was alarming him and his sleep was leaving him. He sees this vision of a tree, a dream, and this tree, this beautiful, magnificent tree, gets chopped down and destroyed, save for the stump. And the stump, it seems, is with its roots still in the ground, meaning that it still has life. Have you ever cut a tree down completely, like down to its stump, and then watch it kind of regrow itself? Has anybody ever done that? Well, my father-in-law didn't recognize that I was pointing him out here. The only time I've ever seen that done was whenever I was dating his daughter, and he lived, and they were we were living in Dallas, and he, for some reason, he 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 chopped his tree down the front yard like t- to a stump. I mean, about this tall. I mean, all the branches were completely gone. I remember this, but I remember several years later that thing regrew itself and re resprouted, reshot new shoots, and took on all new life again. And I think I remember asking him about that. Sorry, I'm pointing you out here this morning. And he said, well, if it was up to me, I would, I would put uh, concrete for grass and just paint it green or something like this. I remember some of these conversations. So he wasn't a big tree guy because trees leave tree trash. And then with anybody tired of tree trash? Yeah. And then you have to do a lot of work in your yard to clean up your said tree trash. But the point is, <clears throat> when you leave the stump in its roots, as, as, it, as we're going to see here, After a certain period of time, there's going to be a restoration of this stump. And the stump, this tree, is emblematic of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's clearly alarmed by this and seeking an understanding from Daniel. So in verses 24 down through verse 26, Daniel elaborates a little more on this vision and the meaning of this for Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So in this portion of the interpretation of the dream, we see the, the significant impact that this is going to be on the life of the man, Nebuchadnezzar. But we also see that God is up to something in this process. We saw there in verse 25 that seven periods or years of time will pass over you, Nebuchadnezzar, until there's a, there's a line of demarcation, until you recognize the only true and living God is the ruler 
over all things, over mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes, just like he showed you in the dream that we articulated in chapter 2. And then your kingdom will be assured to you. God's not finished with Nebuchadnezzar just yet. And perhaps one of the reasons that God wasn't finished with Nebuchadnezzar just yet was for the exclusive purpose of getting chapter 4 written in the good book for time and all eternity. The recognition of what happens to the heart of a man who truly sees God for who he is. And the great humility that falls upon any man or woman who therein recognizes that it's the Most High who is the ruler over all things. And thus we as people, Nebuchadnezzar, need to learn to live in subjection to God and his word, and we need to stop pretending as if we're just free agents out here and that we're able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want. And you know, God, as we've made mention here recently, I think it was even just last week, put the knowledge of who he was in the bosom of every person that's ever been born. In Genesis, we see that he made them male and female. He created them after his own image. And that which is known about God, Romans 1, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Because the creation, natural revelation, it's a light. It's not the light. It's a light that puts all people on the path to the recognition that we need to look up that there is a God who made all these wondrous things. And I even recognize within my heart there's a moral code and a moral compass. Where did that come from? Why do I know that I shouldn't be sleeping with my neighbor's wife intuitively or the, or the girl down the street or some woman who's not my wife? Why do I know intuitively those moral truths? Where did that come from? It came from the knowledge of God that he bestowed on all people. Nebuchadnezzar is no different than any man. And God is here giving us a, the opportunity of seeing the, the great humiliation that needs to overcome a man. It's been said that God cannot truly use a person, a man or a woman, until he has truly broken them down and humbled them of themselves, ridding them of the original sin of pride that's bound up in the heart of all people. And we're going to see here that God, is, as we see, he's going to be stripping Nebuchadnezzar of all the things that Nebuchadnezzar so loved about himself. His great might, his wealth, his power, his popularity, his prestige, his fortune, you name it. All the branches are being stripped. This tree's being cut to a stump. It's being bound with a, with a bronze ring and anchored to the earth turning you to an animal and giving you the mind of an animal. Your hair is going to grow long. You're going to have claws. And you're going to eat the grass and dew will be upon your back. God is going to bring great humiliation into the life of this man. And again, perhaps for the sole purpose that Nebuchadnezzar could then say, as we saw in chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, the king to all the peoples, the nations, 
and people of every language that live on the earth, I have something I need to tell you about the only true God of heaven and earth. God has a way of putting trophies of grace exactly where he wants them for very unique and significant purposes. And so my challenge for us this morning is to not think so much about Nebuchadnezzar because none of us are going to ascend to the heights of a Nebuchadnezzar and his authority and power and wealth and might and majesty and splendor and all that stuff, his dominion. None of us. But God will use each one of us significantly. Sometimes we think of ourselves as just, oh, I just have a normal little life. How's how's God going to use me? What's it going to really matter? Listen, God will place you exactly where he wants to place you upon his earth to be a testimony to his grace so that your life and your lips can tell another human being about the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because he came to seek and save that which was lost, his elect, to build his church. And the the means by which he goes about doing that is you. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just under God's sovereignty. People are going to get saved because they get saved. And we could go there and have that hyper-Calvinistic view, but that's not a good biblical view. God wants to use you. And the power of the gospel through the spoken word of the gospel that comes through you as people. And so we have to have courage. We have to have courage rise up within our heart to go out to tell all peoples and nations and men of every language that are living on all the earth in my little sphere, my little place of earth right here in Jinx, Oklahoma and South Tulsa and wherever I shop, wherever I get my hair cut, wherever it may be. Those are the, that's the scope of the influence that perhaps I have or perhaps you may have or wherever you work or the people of your family or the people in your neighborhood. He's placed you as a trophy of grace, as a child of God, if you're truly saved so that you can let your light shine. Nebuchadnezzar chapter four, verse one through three, he wants to let his light shine. And at the end of the chapter, he's gonna let his light shine even brighter because of what God has done in him and through him. Let's keep looking at this. Does that, does that sound reasonable to you? That God perhaps would want to use you in, in that same way? But aren't you glad you didn't have to get chopped down, stripped down, made like an animal, given a mind of a beast? Let's keep it simple, right? Let's be thankful and say, Lord, use my life how you will and as you desire. Look at verse 27. Daniel now gives counsel to the king as to what he should do. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. What does that sound like? Repent. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent before the only true and living God. You need to humble yourself before the holy God. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Any and every testimony has one thing in common, and it's that of repentance, of breaking away from sins, of turning from sins and turning to God. There's nothing more mind-numbing than to assume that we can sin all the more so that grace would increase. 
if, if there's ever been a lie of the adversary, it's that. A lie of the devil. You can continue to live in sin all you want and then claim grace. Like Linus's blanket, just throw it over your shoulder. I'm covered. But you can go out and live however you want to. That's the most nonsensical theological statement that anybody could try to hoist and eisegete from the words of God, from Genesis to Revelation. It's not the way it works. We are to break away from sins by doing something. And so, some people say, oh, it's just by faith, right? Yes, it's by faith that we get saved. But once saved and truly saved, what did we learn when we went through the book of James? Faith without works is a dead, non-saving faith. So just the, the proclamation of faith without works is dead. It cannot save. That's what James said. We saw that very plainly. And so here, all the way back in Daniel, we see it break away from sins. You're saved by grace through faith, turning from sin, turning to God. By doing righteousness, the life bears the testimony out. If you've truly broken away, it will be shown by how you live. If you haven't truly broken away and you haven't truly committed your life to Christ, you will continue to be a practitioner of sin like you always were before. The only danger now is you perhaps may have Linus's blanket over your shoulder. Well, I I, I repented once. I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, and I got baptized, and I got sent back out. And I've been, I kind of go to church every once in a while, or maybe even I go faithfully, and occasionally I even go to the potlucks. Linus's blanket, alive the adversary. That, you can, that your sin can increase all the more, that you don't break away and demonstrate it through a life of righteousness. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. It was Jesus who said, you will know them by their fruits, their life. A good tree bears good fruit. You know it by their life. A bad tree, an unconverted person, bad fruit. You know it by their life. You never listen to their lips. You always observe it and watch the life. Jesus taught that. Paul taught that. Daniel and Daniel were seeing that. Everybody can have a profession and can say, I believe anything I want to believe. Watch the life. Watch the life. Break away by doing righteousness and showing mercy to the poor. Does that sound like James again? True and undefiled religion is this in the sight of God our Father to do what? Widows, orphans, the most needy among you, the poor, by showing mercy and doing good. It's almost like it's not, it's not quite the gospel the way we know it, but it's kind of like a gospel according to Daniel almost in a certain way, right? There needs to be repentance. This was Daniel's counsel and advice to the king that he would break away from his sin, most notably the, the, his sin of pride. Unless we think that's easy, it's not. I think what we need to recognize is that it's impossible. 
It's absolutely impossible on our own, and we need God to intervene. And we see God in Daniel 4 intervening in the life of Daniel. Listen, the sin of pride is one of the most um, unholy, unrighteous strongholds that the adversary has in the heart of, of people. I remember very vividly when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, which was down in the, in the uh, East Dallas downtown area. It was real close to downtown, which meant that um, from time to time, there would be a, you know, potentially a, a homeless population that you could potentially wander upon just walking on the campus by chance from time to time. And I remember one day when I was on campus that I was approached by a homeless man that was living in the streets of downtown Dallas. And he had, um, he had some kind of a box roped around his neck attached to a box, and he had some, some goods in the box. And he said to me that he wanted to clean my shoes. Can I clean your shoes for some money? He needed some money, and he asked if he could clean my shoes. Well, he, unfortunately, he was hitting up a seminary student. I mean, I literally I pulled my box. <laughs> I pulled my pockets out and I showed it. I said, I, I'm, I, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I, I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, have you heard the gospel? Man, I don't need the gospel. I need money. I said, well, I, I understand that, but unfortunately I don't, ha- I don't have any money. Well, let me, let me clean your shoes. And I said, no, I, no, I don't want you to clean my shoes. I don't have anything to pay you. And he started arguing with me. Well, my family had been in, involved with the Union Gospel Mission, and which is a mission for homeless people in downtown Dallas. My stepdad had been involved with that for as many years as I knew him. And so I started trying to tell this man about the Union Gospel Mission. There's a place here in Dallas. Have you heard of it? Oh, I've heard of the mission, but I don't need that. And I'm not kidding you. This is why he told me. I've got my bridge. So if you ever doubt that the pride of man can be snuffed with poverty... You're kidding yourself. Not even great poverty can snuff the pride of man. This guy was telling me, I don't need that place. I've got my bridge under which I live. And he said it, and his chest was popped out, and he was, he was, he was mad at me because I didn't have any money. And so the conversation kind of ended, and I kept trying to encourage him to go there. That They would feed him, and they'd give him a place to, to sleep. They'd... they'd they had clothing, um, some biblical training, job training. I got my bridge. So it, it's not just, oh, here's Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most wealthy men of, all, of, the, of the day. Now, listen, even great poverty can't snuff out the pride of man because what was the original sin, perhaps, of Satan himself? I will be like God pride. And then through Adam's sin, all have sinned, and we inherited that sin nature. And in our own little ways, we become gods of our own likings. In that, we listen to our own reason. We put down God's word. It doesn't matter what God's word says about anything. We listen to our own reason and determine that we can make life work apart from God and his word. That's the sin of of the devil. I will be like God. And so Nebuchadnezzar's needing to learn this. He needs to break from it, turn from it, and recognize God. And all people need to do that. Amen? And listen, that doesn't mean that's just for the unbelievers. Can we as Christians, can we make idols of things? 
blunt our vision for what God's word is clearly telling us we need to be doing and how we're supposed to live and try to go make our own paths, our own ways and justify it in a myriad numbers of ways, we can do that all the time. The difficulty is, is we need to try, we start trying to distinguish. Well, is that because I'm a tree that bears bad fruit or am I a tree that bears good fruit and just needs repentance? Or am I a tree that bears bad fruit that needs repentance? Which one am I? And we can get caught in that place between was I truly saved those 30 years ago or those 10 years ago when I said a prayer? When I look at my life, do I, do I genuinely see that I have a heart that loves God and wants to live for God? Well, it simply, I think, comes down to this notion. When you sin, do you grieve? Is it grieve your heart and is it breaking your heart that you're sinning against God? I think it can come down to some things even as simplistic as that. Does it grieve my heart, the things that grieves God's heart? When I sin, like Peter, he wept bitterly. When we grieve the heart of God, do we weep bitterly over the fact that we've sinned against the only true and living God who by grace alone has rescued us from a pit of domain and given us eternal life in his name forever and ever and ever and ever? Have we trampled that underfoot briefly? And if we even do that briefly, it grieves the heart of the child of God. It should. There's no grieving. I would do what Peter said in in 2 Peter 1. I would check my spiritual pulse. He said, make all the more certain of his choosing and calling you, brethren. Peter didn't try to say you're in or you're out. He said, if you don't see the evidential work of the Spirit of God alive in you, which is a progressive sanctification, go read it. 2 Peter chapter 1, go read it. If you don't see the progressive work of the Spirit of God alive in you, Peter says, check your spiritual pulse. Are you truly saved? Because if you don't see the evidential work of the Spirit of God in your life, he says you might be short-sighted or blind. You, you might need to just have a great, Lord, I, I need to repent, and I need to turn, and I need to break away from my sins, and I need to come back to you. Or you're blind, you're still spiritually blind, and you need to cry out to heaven for mercy. And I don't know where any of you are at this morning. My glad assumption is that everybody loves Jesus perfectly all the time and never struggles. Except for me, of course. I mean, I'm probably the only one not like that. But the rest of you are probably great and dandy, right? But no. Probably, I don't know, but we need, to, we need to do this kind of work in our own hearts. And this is why we gather around the word of God. And this is why we go to the word and this is why we let it speak. And here we're seeing this very thing happening in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is saying, this is what you need to do. God is going to humble you. And he's going to break you down from your pride. You need to turn away from your sin and it needs to be evident, evidenced in the life. That's what Daniel says in his counsel to the king. Well, we see in verse 28 that every bit of this happens. Everything that we just read happens. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. So what's one of the really good affirmations that we can glean from this verse right here? All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. It's simple. When God says it, you can take it to the bank. It will happen. And so how does that instruct us? How does that inform us? Well, if God has said it, it's going to happen. Just like he said, it's going to happen. 
just like he said to Nebuchadnezzar, show Nebuchadnezzar, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar again. When God says something, you can bank on it because who can stay the hand of God? When God wills it, no man can stop it. What God says is true and totally trustworthy. All of this happened to the king. God ordained it. Now, what we're going to see, thankfully, as a result of this, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar becomes a different person. Let's keep looking at verse 29. Notice the reprieve that God gave him and the opportunities that God gave him. In verse 29, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. God, with his great patience, willing that none would perish, right? Great patience with Nebuchadnezzar. For an entire year, God showed mercy and patience, and Daniel's counsel was for him to turn away from his sin and his iniquities, that there'd be a prolonging of his prosperity before all this took place. Twelve months for Nebuchadnezzar to do this. Verse 30, the king reflected and said, you tell me how, this, how, how it worked out for him. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? What, what are we seeing here so far? I think we're seeing great self-exaltation instead of great humiliation because it's impossible to snuff out the pride of man unless God does it. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I... So we have I, we have myself, my power, my majesty, me, myself. I love me, myself, and I look at what I have accomplished. Now, it was John Walvert in his commentary that said, the building of Babylon was one of Nebuchadnezzar's principal occupations. Inscriptions for about 50 building projects have been found usually made of brick and sometimes of stone. Among the wonders of Nebuchadnezzar's creation were the gardens of Smyrnaeus, the famous hanging gardens regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. The city of Babylon was regarded as the symbol of his power and majesty, and he spared no expense or effort to make it the most beautiful city of the world. The king reflected He's walking around on his pal- in his palace. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power? I think what we're seeing here clearly is that Nebuchadnezzar's pride has suffocated him, and while the very words were in his mouth, God shows up. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is decreed, declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. The heavenly voice here reconfirms both the dream and Daniel's interpretation of the dream, and then the vision became reality. Verse 33, immediately, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. 
And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Judgment came just like God said it would. We see in the, in the New Testament, Hebrews, it's been appointed unto man to die once, and then comes judgment. God says it, it's going to happen. And he's given us a reprieve. He's given all people a reprieve through the preaching of the gospel to repent, to turn away from sin, and to turn to him and to demonstrate it through the life, not just the lips, but through the life. Judgment came like it said. His transition from sanity to insanity was immediate. But we're also going to see, just like God said, mercy would also come. In verse 34, but at the end of that period, that period of seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. So at the end of the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar says that he raised his eyes toward heaven. And it seems that the concept of raising his eyes to heaven wasn't just a physical act of looking up into the sky. It seems to be more the idea of a settled submission, the eyes of his heart. Since in Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. So it would seem that here Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual eyes were raised towards heaven, opened and turned to notice that he was a man in need and that God was providing mercy. And it says then, and my reason returned to me. Nebuchadnezzar's madness was taken away. Just as quickly as it came upon him, my reason returned to me. It reminds me of the, um, the garrison cutting himself in the tombs. Jesus shows up sits him, places him in his right mind, and immediately the man is changed. And it seems that this is exactly what we see happening in a similar way, not exactly, but a similar way with Nebuchadnezzar. My reason returned to me. And notice what he did after that. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Notice these these three verbs here. Blessed, praised, and honored. Nebuchadnezzar's reason returns to him, and immediately there seems to be an outburst of praise and recognition of God's sovereignty, of God's absolute control over everything, and especially over Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't too worried about about his, his neighbor at this point. He's really just thinking about him. He's not too worried about the person yet who's who's somewhere beyond his reach. He's thinking about himself. Now, he did concern the man outside of his reach. Where did we see that? In chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. After it was all said and done, after Nebuchadnezzar dealt with the condition of his heart, and his spiritual eyes were opened, then what did he say? I want to make proclamation to all people's nations and men of every language. I want to make known the greatness of God, which is what world missions and evangelism is all about. How does God get the gospel to the nations? Through you, his church, people who get saved. And people have been getting saved and going all, this world has been traversed with people going around this earth 
spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, Cade, we thank Cade, maybe, maybe back in Jordan today. Cade was with us for three weeks. Cade said, I want to go somewhere where people have less access to the gospel. He was a young man, grew up in America, had a lot going for him. He said, I want to in, inconvenience my life and go someplace where people have less access to the gospel so that I can tell them about it. And Cade was here with us for two years, and then Cade left us to go do that. That's how the guy out back hears about the good news, is God puts it on the heart of his children like he did Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 1, I want to tell everybody about what God has done. But when his reason came back to him, he blessed, honored, and praised him who lives forever. And here it is again, for his dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar keeps going back to that beautiful reality. that he saw in chapter 2. God will establish a kingdom that will endure forever and ever. Nebuchadnezzar made mention of that. Remember in chapter 3, after the great rescue of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, remember what he said? Hey, listen, if anybody speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to tear them from limb to limb and turn their house to a rubbish heap. Right? So God kind of made evangelism really friendly uh, through Nebuchadnezzar across the known world. If you speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to come after you. Rip your arms and your legs off, leave your carcass lying on the ground, and then destroy your house. And he probably meant that. Like, it wasn't just hyperbole, you think, Matt? I think he probably really, he probably meant that. So He made evangelism really friendly, but here in chapter 4, after having his spiritual eyes open, he reverts back to what he saw in chapter 2, the rock, the kingdom that will last forever. His dominion is a dominion that will last forever and ever and ever. In verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, including him. Imagine that. Nebuchadnezzar, have you humbled your heart? All the inhabitants of of the earth are counted as nothing. It takes humility to recognize that you account for nothing. Nebuchadnezzar's recognizing that not only does he account for nothing, that all people account for nothing <clears throat> in comparison to knowing God. But God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God does, what does it say right here? But he does according to his will, where? In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everywhere, earth and heaven. God does his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Romans chapter 9. Why have you done this? Why would you do this this way? If you're sovereign over heaven and you have the opportunity to show mercy to everybody you want to show mercy to, then why haven't you done that? And Paul's answer was, why do you answer back to God, old man? Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar is saying to somebody who may have a word of conflict with what he's now saying, No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can say to God, why have you made me this way? Why did you turn those events that way? Why didn't you bless me more this way? Why didn't you make me like this guy over here or this girl over here? No one can say to him, what have you done? I think Nebuchadnezzar is demonstrating a great deal 
of humility and recognition that he's the worm and that God is God. Here's a quote from Charles Hodge. I'm running out of time. In all these verses right here, (laughs) all these verses right here, you probably can't see them because it's so small. Psalm 115.3, 1 Chronicles 29.11, Psalm 24.1, Ezekiel 18.4, Ephesians 1.11, Romans 11.36. I just wrote down a few. I could have gone on, but I, I was, it would have gotten even smaller. Go and read these verses that tell of the mighty, sovereign power and hand of God and that no one can stay his will. No man can. He rules from heaven and he does whatsoever he pleases. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. (laughs) Amen? No one can say to him, what have you done? Now, a lot of people say, I don't like what you've done. And if that's the kind of God you are, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Boom. And he's like, hey, No problem. I've kindled a hell that forever and ever and ever and ever will declare the glory of God through my justice forever. And it's prepared for those. It's a broad gate. And it's prepared for those who thumb their nose at me and say, no, thank you. No grace needed. No mercy wanted. No one can say, what have you done? Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Does that rub you wrong? If it rubs you wrong, you haven't killed pride the way Nebuchadnezzar has had to kill pride yet. I can just promise you that. Let's keep going. We've got to finish this up, and I am running out of time. I apologize. This went way longer than I thought it was going to go. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will. I already did that one. 36, at that time, my reason returned to me. So here, we're on the backside of it now. At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished, and my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. And some might say, well, why would God do that? Because he's in the heavens, and he does whatsoever he pleases. Does God owe us an answer? Our God is in the heaven. He does whatsoever he pleases. But I made mention of this earlier. And in my little finite mind, one of the reasons I think that God did this was so that we could have chapter four in the book. One of the reasons God restored and reestablished sovereignty and surpassing greatness to Nebuchadnezzar was so that we could have chapter four in the book so that we could be reading it here today on January 23rd of 2022. And we could see how God from heaven, not only is he chapter two, sovereign over all the nations, the rising and falling of nations, He's also sovereign over individual lives, and he does in individuals' lives as he pleases, as he does to the nations. On earth as it is in heaven, he does what he pleases. So verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, notice, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to... (laughs) What? What are you saying, Nebuchadnezzar? He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And therein lies the beauty of chapter 4 and the great humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar under the mighty hand of God to demonstrate 
to all peoples and nations and men of every language that live on all the earth. I, Nebuchadnezzar, want to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. God changed my life, and he humbled me, and he ripped my pride out, and it took a lot because I was Nebuchadnezzar the Great over Great Babylon, and this is what God has done for me, and I want you to know this and to do the same. It seems like chapter 4 is the gospel according to Nebuchadnezzar and an evangelistic call to all people everywhere to say, you need to do the same thing that I did. You need to humble yourself of your pride and recognize there's only a God in heaven and ask that God would open the eyes of your heart to recognize that. And how will you know? Because it's not just something that drops from the lips. It now becomes an internal reality and desire and drive from your heart, and you become a good tree that will bear good fruit to the glory of God because now you love God in ways you never have before and never could have before. So if you're here this morning and that fits you, might today be the day that you humble your heart and your pride before the only true God of heaven and earth and learn to submit to him and cry out for his mercy and grace in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel of Christ. And if you're here as a child of God this morning, let this be an encouragement to you to let your light shine. Nebuchadnezzar did. You do it too. Amen. People are watching. People are watching. Let's pray. 